So good to be with you guys. Um, as you have heard already, I recently retired, and it is true, since I retired, I've given up haircuts altogether. Uh, people say something about my hair, and I want to say it's a midlife crisis. The problem with that is I'm, I'm not in midlife anymore. I don't really want to say end-of-life crisis. That doesn't sound right either. So I'll just go with once a hippie, always a hippie. How about that? I'm a child of the 70s. There you go. Finding your Bibles this morning, the, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew in chapter 18. Matthew 18. I'm going to begin reading at verse 21. Blake, I don't know your custom. Do you normally stand for the... You do? Let's, okay. If you're there, if you found Matthew 18, 21, let's stand together. <clears throat> I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. These, this is one of the parables of Christ. Verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven, or seventy-seven times. Your Bible may translate that. It's, it's a difference in translation. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him and saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It was the 18th century English poet, Alexander Pope, who coined the phrase, you've heard it no doubt, to err is human, to forgive what? Divine. To err is human, yeah, to forgive divine. And it's certainly true that that human beings make all kinds of errors, do we not? Lots of them. We just confess them in this service. And it's also wonderfully true that God in his mercy forgives us our errors. He forgives us our sin. Praise him. God forgives sinners. That's the good news we celebrate, is it not? But to put it like the poet puts it, places all 
all the responsibility to forgive on God and God alone. All the responsibility to show mercy is his. All we do is err. God is the one who shows mercy. God is the one who forgives. However, according to the Bible, we too are called to show mercy. We too are called to forgive. We are obligated to imitate God in his compassion, in his pity on people. We're called to follow in those footsteps, to be like God in displaying that kind of forgiveness and mercy. As great as God's forgiveness for us is, to only celebrate that and not extend that same compassion, mercy, and forgiveness to others is in fact a serious distortion of Christian living. If we know forgiveness, is it not true? If we know forgiveness, shouldn't we show forgiveness? If we've tasted deep down the mercy of God, shouldn't we show that mercy to others in how we relate to them? We just sang the Lord's Prayer a few moments ago, right before I got up to preach. And part of it goes like this. Father, forgive us our debts as we what? Forgive also our debtors. You see, the two are tied together. God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of other people. The Apostle Paul makes the same connection. For example, Ephesians chapter 4, listen to the words he writes. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, here it is, forgiving one another as God in Christ, what? Forgave you, forgive others. Again, in Colossians 3, he writes, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The Bible is filled with this message. God has been merciful to you, my friend. (laughs) Show that same kind of mercy to other people. It was the star pupil of Jesus who brought up this subject of mercy and forgiveness on one occasion. No doubt, because like us, he knew the struggles of letting go of wrongs from others. Look what we find out about Peter. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, or 77 times, however your Bible translates that. Forgiving others was a a topic often discussed by the Jewish rabbis of that day, and their conclusion was to limit one's forgiveness of others to to no more than three times. One rabbi put it like this in his writings, if a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time, he is forgiven. The fourth time, no way. No forgiveness. We've reached the limit. So, Peter's seven times would have been seen, perhaps, as quite magnanimous. Peter thinks he has a big heart. Perhaps he's trying to impress Jesus. I'm, what about seven times? I'm going beyond the rabbis here. But Jesus' answer reveals he wasn't impressed at all. Jesus says, Peter, not seven times, but 70 times seven, or again, 77 times, which, make no mistake here, Jesus does not mean after 490 times or 77 times, you can stop forgiving. That's not what he means. What he means is, don't even think about counting. Don't even think about it. Just do it. 
Jesus' brand of forgiveness is like Nike's brand of shoes. Don't calculate it. Just do it. Do it, he says. Our Lord does away with all calculations and all limits when it comes to forgiving other people's wrongs against you. And And then Jesus does what Jesus loves to do. He doesn't launch into a word study of forgiveness or some deep theological explanation of why we should forgive. Jesus does what he loves to do. He tells a story. We call them parables. They are stories that Jesus himself made up. Parables were Jesus' way of telling truth, listen now, but telling it indirectly, not directly through the front door. Telling it slant, as the poet Emily Dickinson puts it. Telling truth slant. You see, Jesus knows, like we should know, that sometimes when you're trying to get something across to people, you don't go through the front door, guns are blazing. You go through the side door, the back door. And perhaps they might listen to you when you do it that way. So Jesus tells stories. He tells parables. And when he tells parables, when you read a parable, it's meant you're supposed to connect the dots yourself. A parable requires you to work at it a little bit. You've got to think about what this represents and what this is. And so it is also in this parable. He tells us a story, a parable, a story, and he wants us to think about what it means to forgive other people. And this story of his has three characters in it, a king and two debtors. And the way these three characters interact tells us something about forgiveness. God's forgiveness of us, and how we should extend that forgiveness to other people. So let's think about this parable together and try to connect the dots. And the first truth I think he wants us to see is this. We are forgiven, that is, if you're a Christian this morning, we are forgiven a great debt, a huge debt. If you know Jesus Christ in a personal way, God has released you from a debt, a debt so big you could never hope to repay it. That's the point Christ is making here. It hangs over us, and only God can release us. In his Son, you and I have been shown, have we not, great mercy and compassion. That's what Jesus wants you to take away from this parable. So in the story, Jesus says there was once a king, a king who decided to settle all of his accounts, his accounts receivable, I should say, his debtors. And so he called all his accounts receivable guys, his debtors, into him and uh, into his place and he began to settle those accounts. And one guy owed him a huge sum of money. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Take note of that. 10,000 talents. Now, You need to know this. A talent was the largest unit of currency in that day. In our day, the largest unit of currency, do you know what it is? A dollar bill? The largest dollar bill now is a hundred dollar bill. That's it. Doesn't get any bigger than that. Uh, Used to be uh, the Federal Reserve issued $10,000 bills, but no longer. So a talent was the, the, the largest unit of currency. And a talent, take note of this, a talent was worth about 20 years wages for a laborer. That's a lot of money, isn't it? 20 years' work, that's one talent, okay? 10,000 was the largest number in the Greek language. Didn't go any higher than that. So connect some dots now. 10,000 talents would be like saying today, a hundred billion. 
billion. That's what this dude owed. You know, the net worth of Bill Gates, 100 billion bucks. Well, there's no way he could pay, right? So the king ordered that all his possessions be sold, and he and his family become the king's servants, the king's slaves. Well, the guy is distraught. He falls on his knees. He begs for mercy. He says, please be patient with me, and I will pay you back everything. Of course, he really couldn't. What does the king do? How does the king respond to the plea, the plea for mercy? Look at what we find here. The king was moved with compassion and forgave him the whole debt, everything, billions of dollars. Look at verse 27. You've got to get this one. Verse 27, and out of pity for him. The word means compassion, mercy. His heart was stirred inside of him. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. A hundred billion dollars wiped off the books. Can you imagine that? And the joy he must have felt, gone. I remember when I graduated from seminary, back in the Middle Ages, of course, 1984, um, with several thousand dollars of school debt. We had been in seminary for five years at that time. Uh, And quite frankly, we were dirt poor. I mean, we didn't have much at all. I mean, both students were in the same place as we were. I had worked at a meat market locally in Indiana for $4.25 an hour. Anybody remember those days? Supporting a family, three kids, $4.25 an hour. And then my last year in seminary, by God's grace, I got a job as a pastor at a church locally there and made a decent salary for that one year. But when all was said and done, we really had no savings to amount to anything at all. And so we had a big debt, thousands of dollars hanging over our head. So upon graduation, my dad and my brother, bless their heart, out of compassion for their poor son and brother, <laughs> took care of that debt for us. Well, I should say the farm paid for it. Paid the whole thing. And I remember how it felt for that burden, even though small in comparison to the debt in this story, but I remember what it felt like for those thousands of dollars to be gone. Don't have to worry about it ever again. Didn't have to pay them back. Didn't have to pay the school. The debt was released. Wonderful feeling. The point of the story here, right? You've got it, I imagine. The point of the story is that the huge debt owed by the servant is a picture of what? It's a picture of what we what? Oh, God. God's the great king in the story. This is what we owe him. Our wrongs, our sins are first of all against God because this is his world and he makes the rules and we, you and I, are accountable to him. And we owe him everything, our lives, all of it. And the truth of the matter is this, is it not, my friend? Let's just be brutally honest. Our debt is so big, it is impossible for us to pay it. Billions of dollars. Who's going to pay that? Who has the resources to pay that? Not only because our sins are so many, but because his majesty is so great, we owe God so much. He is the great, exalted king. When I came to Christ back in college, when I was 21 years old, I remember the burden that I felt when I came. I, I, um, 
I would not have been able to articulate it clearly back then, but I remember knowing deep down that, that there was something wrong with me, and I was out of sorts with God. I couldn't put it all together. I had not grown up in a very good church at all. I didn't know much at all. But God was at work in my heart. I knew something was wrong. And I knew that I needed forgiveness. And since then, over the years, as I've remembered more of the bad things I thought and did as a young boy and a young man, and there was plenty there, and all the good things that I didn't do and should have done. And then on top of all of that, I remember my failings, my shortcomings that I've committed as a Christian, as a child of God. And yet all that up, you add all of that up, it's a big, big burden. It weighs a lot. It feels so heavy, so deep, so wide. Listen now. Except for the mercy of God, except for the pity of God and his son, except for God's compassion for me, for us. His mercy, his compassion in Christ is deeper and wider than all of my sins and all of your sins. Amen? Amen. Don't you love the way the Apostle Paul puts it? Where sin abounded, what? Grace did what? Much more abound. It's deeper and wider. (laughs) He can forgive you all of that mess and let it all go. God can do that. Several weeks ago, I had lunch with a friend, and um, it was an unusual lunch. He asked me to help him with his prayer life. I don't think I've ever had anybody ask me that at lunch before, ever. But he wanted to meet with me because he sensed that his prayer life was not doing well. He said his prayer life just felt like a duty. There was no joy in it at all. And so we talked about it. And we talked about his view of God. And he shared that um, it, uh, he felt like he had to, every day he had to say almost the same prayer over and over. Every day he had to thank God and tell him the same people, the same things he's thankful for. I said, why do you repeat that every day? He, he says, because I want to make sure God hears it. And he was serious. He wasn't trying to be funny. And as we talked, it became fairly clear that his view of God, God's a very demanding taskmaster, stern and very exacting. (laughs) And God is there wagging his finger at him. You better get there, and you better thank me again, buddy. (laughs) Are you sure you were sincere yesterday when you thanked me? And his view of God is not the view of the God of the Bible. That is not how God relates to his people. And we talked and talked about duty and lack of joy. And maybe that's your view of God. I don't know. This man had been involved in a very, very extremely conservative church for a long, long time. And maybe he got that view of God from them. I don't know where he got it from. We talked about that. He didn't know where he got it from. But there, there, God was not the loving father ready to forgive and receive his children. That's not the way he thought of him. He claimed to be a Christian, had been walking with Jesus for many, many years. I encouraged him. It was fascinating to me, sitting out there listening to Blake read the Old Testament reading. That's the very passage I encouraged him to read, Exodus 34. So let me ask you, is this your view of God? Let me read just a few verses that Blake read once again. Just, Just listen. You have to turn there. Listen to what God says to Moses. And what you need to realize is this. What he says to Moses here, 
is, becomes foundational in the Old Testament. The prophets, many of them, pick it up and repeat it over and over and over again. The Bible is telling us, if you, we pay attention, this is fundamentally what God is like. Here's what our God is like. Are you ready? Here's what he says to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God stern, demanding, exacting, always wagging his finger at you. Are you ready for this? The Lord, the Lord. Our God, merciful. And gracious. Listen now. Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousand generations. <laughs> Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When I forgive, you know how, I, how it often is? Very begrudgingly. God delights in forgiving people. Is that your God? When you come running, when you confess your sin, when you've messed up big time, he delights in forgiving people. Listen, my friend. He will forgive billions of dollars of debt and wipe it off. Can you imagine a God like that? That's what Jesus is telling us in this story, this little story that he made up. We are forgiven, my friend. If you are a Christian, we are forgiven a great debt. But that's not the only truth here. The story doesn't stop there, does it? In fact, that's really not the point of the story as much as that figures in the storyline Jesus is getting at something else with this parable. And here's the second truth he wants you to get a hold of. If we are forgiven a great debt, listen now, we are to forgive a much smaller debt. We must show mercy to those who have sinned against us. We receive this huge amount of mercy and compassion and pity. Surely we can forgive the littler sin, can't we? That's the point of the story. As the parable unfolds, the forgiven servant found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Look at verse 28 there. Verse 28, let's go back to Matthew there. <clears throat> but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe, a hundred denarii. Now, denarii is just plural for denarius, and you need to know this. A denarius, one denarius was one day's wage. So, you look like really smart people. I hear there are smart people in Smithfield. A hundred denarii would be how many days' wage? 
I knew you were intelligent, brilliant. A hundred days wage. That is a little over three months, okay? So let's say your wage today is around $50,000 a year. This guy owes you a fourth of that, uh, $12,500. let us say your salary is a hundred grand a year. You're doing well. Then this guy would owe you $25,000. In other words, this is no small amount, right? You got anybody that owes you fifteen, twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars right now? Significant amount of money. Well, the servant accosts his debtor and demands payment. Says, "Pay what you owe." Right? Well, connect this dot. The debtor does exactly what the servant does. Uses the same words. Have mercy on me. Look at verse 29. Verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now, this dude has heard those words before. He used them himself. Back up to verse 26. Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, that is the king, have patience with me and I will pay you. The same words that he used. This guy's using with him. But instead of showing mercy, what does he do? He demands his pound of flesh. He threw him into prison. Well, then word got back to the king. Uh, this guy had acted. Look at verse 31. Verse 31. And when his, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Verse 32. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And here's, here's the next verse is where the whole story turns. If you miss this, you miss the point Jesus is making. Look at verse 33. And should not you, and should not you have had mercy, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, sorry, as I had mercy on you. In other words, what, what, what did I forgive you? And you can't extend that to him? What's going on, man? What's the point? Where's the disconnect here? What's happening here? Jesus is telling us the truth is as plain as a nose on your face. If you've been given mercy, shouldn't you bestow mercy to others? If you've received such rich forgiveness, and we all profess it every Sunday, don't we? Is it not true every Sunday you guys go through a pardon of transgression, an assurance of pardon for sin? I think you do. If, in fact, my friend, you celebrate this every week after week after week after year after year, you have received such rich and amazing mercy and compassion and forgiveness. Why would you withhold that from others? From others. That's the point Jesus wants us to get. If we know forgiveness then shouldn't we show forgiveness? If we get forgiveness and mercy, then shouldn't we give forgiveness and mercy? So let's do a little thought experiment this morning. Who has recently wronged you? Don't even try to tell me nobody. You don't lie in church. Who has recently wronged you? Somebody has. 
Guarantee you. Spouse, your child. I'm sure it wasn't Blake, your pastor. No, it couldn't have been that. <clears throat> Coworker, neighbor, family member, friend. Who has recently wronged you? Okay, if it's not so recent, go back a year. Within the last year, who has wronged you significantly? Put a number value on that. How big is it to you? Pretty big, not so big? Put a, put a dollar value on that wrong they've done against you. Now, hold that. <clears throat> Think about your wrongs done against God within the last year, whatever. Put a dollar value on that. Now, let's be brutally honest. You tell me which number is bigger. Which number is larger? Which one? Is it like the difference between the net worth of Bill Gates and three months of salary? May I say this? If it's not, then something's not quite right in the way you view the world and others and yourself and God. You see, it really comes down to that, doesn't it? It really comes down to how you see yourself, how you see other people, and how you see your God. See your God. If, in fact, you're the good guy who sometimes makes mistakes, but always with good intentions, and certainly God should forgive you because you have such a wonderful good heart and good intentions. But the other guy... The other guy is so wicked, most of the time he has bad motives. I can tell you all about it. And he should get what he deserves. If, in fact, that's the way we view the world, then something's not right. Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying that forgiving others always means that you forget everything. I think most of the time, forgiving others does mean just let it go. Just forget it. Just move on. Don't, don't even make an issue out of it. Just let it go. Release the debt. Don't hold on to it. Don't nurse it. Just let it go. I think most of the time it means that. But sometimes <clears throat> forgiveness means going to somebody and talking with them about the situation and maybe confrontation. But a forgiving, merciful spirit is always working for reconciliation. It means letting go of the need. This is what's really big. Forgiveness means letting go of the debt. That is, let's say say it another way. It means letting go of the need to see the other person hurt. You hurt me? I'm praying somebody gets you back if it's not me. It means letting go of that need. I think at core, that's what forgiveness is. And it's not easy, is it? Because if you and I get hurt really deeply, let's be honest again, (laughs) we want to see the other person pay a bit. But any confrontation from a forgiving spirit is going to be tempered and gracious. And it means also this, my friend. It means that when you forgive somebody, you absorb the cost yourself instead of making the other person pay. And that hurts. When you absorb the cost. 
when you just absorb it and don't require anything. That's a kind of that's that's like a kind of death. Which is exactly what it means, listen now, to take up your cross and follow Jesus. When you enter into forgiving others over and over and over again, that's going to feel like taking up your cross. But I will say this to us. Taking up your cross is the only path to true life. Forgiving others, really letting it go, and not nursing it, is the only path to real resurrection life. For several years when I was, and I close with this, for several years when I was a young pastor, I I read a lot of sermons by a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welshman by birth. He became a pastor. Lloyd-Jones, he's dead now. He died in 1980. Lloyd-Jones was one of the most powerful preachers in all the U.K., uh, as many people testify to. He pastored um, Westminster Chapel. Perhaps some of you have been to London. I don't know if you've ever visited Westminster Chapel there, but uh, he was a medical doctor by training, and then the Lord called him into pastoral ministry in the middle of his life, really, or maybe just a little bit earlier. But um, I used to read all of his stuff, just loved it in lots of ways. And he made just some profound observations. Let me read you just one little short quote of what he says about forgiving others. This struck me. I'll share it with you. Here's what he says. As soon as I can find it. I lost it. Here it is. Pardon me. I say to the glory of God and in utter humility that whenever I see myself before God and realize even something of what my blessed Lord has done for me, I am ready to forgive anybody Anything. It's pretty powerful. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us now to take this story that you told into our hearts, to hold it dearly, to think on it, to meditate on it, to carry it with us as we leave this place. Would you make your church, your people, merciful people? Because you are merciful. In your great name, amen.